about some things that I've learned recently. <clears throat> I will reiterate a couple of announcements. Uh, the fast of the seventh month comes up the day after tomorrow on Thursday, uh, commemorating the murder of Gedaliah when Israel or Judah were going back into the captivity of Babylon. And uh, the one who had been appointed leader at that time was physically killed. Uh, that isn't anything strange or new in the history of God's church or the prophets or anything else. Uh, and in fact, I think Herbert Armstrong very well may have been murdered based on a comment in Isaiah 1. And we, of course, know the two witnesses are going to be killed as well. So uh, the death of leadership in God's church is not... Uh, a strange or unusual thing, and people seeking to kill them is not strange either. So uh, this meaning, this fast coming up has a great deal of meaning for God, for the history, and also for the future. <clears throat> as far as uh, our dear sister Charlotte Nichols, who died Friday evening, uh, we plan a service for her. Uh, out at the little cemetery we have at 4 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. So 4 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. Now today we will approach one of our most cherished beliefs, something that probably no one, if anyone, has ever considered questioning in this era of the church, the one we have all referred to as Philadelphia, from the time that any of you were brought to a knowledge of the truth and baptized <clears throat> until this day. We have been in a very deep rut that no one has really even thought of tried, trying to jump out of, uh, but I think it's time we look at the information. I have been saying for quite some time, and made references various, at various times, that Herbert Armstrong did not know what he was doing. Now, that does not mean he didn't do something. It doesn't mean he was not used of God, but he did not understand his commission. He thought his commission was Matthew 24:14 to preach the gospel around the world, as a witness, and then the end would come. Now, he did everything he did, and he did preach the gospel. It did go to a great deal of the world, but the end didn't come. And he's been dead nearly 30 years. The end has still not come. We thought he was to restore all things, if he were the Elijah to come, as per Matthew 17. But he did not restore all things. There were many, many things he never did understand on the day that he died. Many things that have been learned since, by various peoples and by ourselves even. So, <clears throat> he did not fulfill Matthew 24:14. The end has not come. Now, the Scriptures are very clear that the two witnesses are to go out and witness and preach to the whole world, and when they are killed, the end will come. So, Matthew 24 is speaking in its ultimate fulfillment of the final and latter temple, the last resurrection of the Church of God. It wasn't talking about Herbert Armstrong. So, what did he do? Matthew 28, 19 to 20 is what he actually fulfilled. He went out and preached and called many to the truth. That's what he actually did. He did not really, as an overall thing, witness against the world. Now, I do remember, before Ted started preaching, Way back in the 50s, Herbert Armstrong being on the radio and talking about scriptures in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, 
warning Israel of what it was to come. He thought it was more imminent than it was, but nevertheless, he got on the airwaves and did preach some pretty strong scriptures about the demise of this country. That, of course, kind of died out, and Ted began talking about platypuses and dolphins and evolution and very little to do with the true gospel of Christ. I don't find anything in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John about dolphins or whales or honeybees. So he got away from that. Now, Herbert Armstrong also had ceased after, I don't know how long it was, that he actually preached a fairly strong message. It wasn't a long time, but I do remember it even as a child. But then he began to espouse a program of two trees, a way of evil, a way of life, a way of love, a way of hate. Uh, of give and not get were the terms he used most frequently. So it was a calling message. It was essentially a friendly message. He did not go to the world leaders and condemn them and tell them what they were doing and call them the basest of men, as Daniel 4 does. He didn't go that route. He tried to teach them that leaders ought to give not to get, and that people ought to give and not to get, that that was the way to go. So it was basically a friendly calling message as opposed to a gloom and doom, end of the world uh, type of message, or a witness against the way people were living, at least not in a direct and powerful way. When he explained get, of course it meant you're, you're being selfish, but... It didn't come across in a, an abrasive way, let's say. And he tried to be careful to build a group rather than to uh, let the world know how things really are. So it was kind of a mixed message, and I think this should ring true to all of you because you saw and heard what he did. It was jet airplanes and coming down the runways, and it was uh, uh, happy, happy... Uh, ambassador uh, singer stuff and we are family and, and all of that designed to call. And indeed, it worked. God was behind it and a great number of people were called. We got as big as, they say, 150,000 at one point. I don't know what statistics were used for that. It was somewhat of an estimate. I suspect that they may have gotten that from attendance at Feast of Tabernacles in the peak years, and that included unconverted mates, grandmothers, aunts, and uncles, dogs, and cats that came to the Feast of Tabernacles. So, uh, you know, I think 150,000 was probably pushing it. On the other hand, many had come into the church, lived and died within the church in those years, who were probably going to be in the first fruits as well. So, just looking at the numbers, it did get quite big, in some respects, not compared to the Catholics and, <laughs> and some of those, but certainly in comparison to the little flock that the Bible describes of God's church through, through the ages, for that matter. So, rather than preaching the gospel around the world as a witness in the end coming, he preached a calling message because indeed God did say, many will be called and few chosen. We went through the calling phase. Now we have gone into a different phase, and I think people are now being chosen. Uh, we may get into that a little more later, but just to describe overall what Herbert Armstrong thought he was doing compared to what he actually did and accomplished. God did use him to create a calling from whom he could choose the faithful who endure to the end and who live up to uh, Scripture combined with the mercy of God. So that's what he did. Now, the question comes up of who he was. We know he didn't know what he was doing. Now do we know whether he even knew who he was or not? 
I never considered this thought one way or another until I got a paper a few days ago from one Zeke Ward, whom some of you have met. He was here at the Feast of Tabernacles in Zion in 2006, I believe the year was, and he brought with him some information that I examined, and it was quite clear to me that he was right. And that is that the reference in Matthew to them calling <coughs> the Messiah or the Christ Jesus or Joshua or Yeshua or however you want to put your Greek and Hebrew together or your English, that that would be what they would call him. But then it says later on they would call him Emmanuel. Joshua or Jesus or Yeshua, take your pick, means God is salvation. And that is very true, and that name was apropos to Christ when he was here. However, Emmanuel means God with us. So it was for a future generation, the end-time generation, that the name Emmanuel would come into play. And again, we pick it up in Matthew 7 and a couple of other references there close to that, showing that the end-time church, just before the New World Order takes over, would use Emmanuel. And further, in Zechariah 2 and other places in the prophecies, that he would come and dwell with that end-time church, the latter temple, overseen by the two witnesses and populated by the remnant of faithful brethren that would then be. I'll leave it in that general term so we can identify them later. So, he brought us that information, and we looked at it, we examined the Scriptures, and we adopted it. And we've been using it since. Now, I didn't hear from Zeke. Well, I did hear from him a time or two or three not too long after that, and then no more contact was made, and I had no idea where he even was. But a few days ago, I received a packet in print from him. Uh, he's in Arkansas now. And I thought, well, that might be interesting. He's brought us something good before. Maybe he's brought us something good again. But I waited a day or two or three because of... Uh, circumstances here with Charlotte and various things that were occupying my time before I got to it, <clears throat> and then started reading it here two or three days ago. As I said this morning in the announcement, and I think I'll include it here for sake of the tape and those who may not have heard this morning as well, uh, we this year, because of the way the new moon fell just before the spring equinox, uh, use the new moon a month later, since the new moon came six hours before the equinox. So that put us a month later, essentially, from the Jews and most of the churches of God uh, in keeping Feast of Trumpets today and the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, there was a certain amount of concern about that, and some thought it was wrong. But to me, I got some confirmation and in the information I'm about to give you, and that is that it didn't come a month ago just before the Jewish or Church of God, some of them, Feast of Trumpets. It came just before this one. And it is very important, I think, to the story of the resurrection and the resurrection of the Church, if you will, and we'll see about that as we go along. So, God sent it at the right time, and in my mind, at least, it confirms that we are here on the correct day, uh, not a month ago, okay? And many of the things that a lot of people thought were going to happen around the time of the Jewish uh, calendar, all over the Internet, did not happen the way they thought it would. That tells me something as well. We shall see what the future brings. But that's where we are today. Now, in the first article, which I'll address today, the second probably on atonement, because it fits atonement very well, and the information is important for us at atonement. But this one has to do, beginning in Revelation 2, 
You know Revelation 2 and 3 are about the seven churches, whether they be nose to tail throughout history from the time of the apostles until today and tomorrow, or whether they all exist at the end time, which I think are both true. They did come from the apostles on down, and the church of God never completely died out, though it almost did. And it's hard to trace Sabbath keepers, holy day keepers, through the Middle Ages and so on. There are little glimpses here and there, but there isn't much history of that era known. In any case, because it was the Dark Ages and books were burned and history was lost. So it's hard to trace, but you can see a glimmer here and there of a little thread of Sabbath keepers from Christ's day until today. Now, I want to go here to Revelation 2 and verse 18. Church, or the message to the church at Thyatira. There's something here that hardly anyone has addressed or had any clue as to what it meant. And I have read over it many times and thought, what's that talking about? What does it mean? What does it have to do with history? What does it have to do with the church? I know it must fit because it's in here, but I don't get it. So let's look at it. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, so this is a message directly from Christ, who has eyes like to a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. So to Thyatira he says, I know your works and love and service and faith and your patience and your works. Interesting that he says works at the beginning and works at the end. We'll comment on that later. But what I want to get to here is, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against you because you suffered that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess. God doesn't. Christ didn't. She called herself that. To teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, I know of no one in the history of God's church who has actually taught physical fornication. Maybe when Moses was on the mountain they did and the golden calf came down. But the church of God, whatever era, has enough understanding that they would not teach that. And even this woman, if she were part of the church, which appears to be here, I don't think would have taught physical fornication or sacrificing things to real idols made of wood or stone or glass or whatever. Uh, so this has to be a spiritual understanding, uh, just as God called Israel the great whore in Ezekiel 16. Uh, she was committing fornication and adultery with the nations of the world, the peoples of the world, by making military uh, and other pacts with the nations around them, adopting their beliefs, adopting their doctrines, and ultimately then worshiping their gods, because the one that you serve and the stuff you believe is who you are. So if they believe false doctrines, they weren't of God. Christ said the same thing of the Pharisees, did he not? You worship, you know not what. Now they thought they were worshiping the God of creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they used that constantly to show who they were. But Christ came and said, No, you're not of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are Pharisees, you're unwashed cups, you're filthy on the inside. You're like whitened sepulchers. You are snakes and a generation of vipers. Whoa, they said. Who are you to call us that? We're, of the, we're sons of Abraham. No, you're not. You are of whom you obey. And they had false doctrine. They would not accept Christ. Even though they kept the law assiduously, they missed the whole point of God's way of life and who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob really were and who God the Father was. So they were really in their attitudes. Now, they may have had a lot of doctrine right, okay? 
They kept the holy days. They kept the Sabbath. They kept clean and unclean meats. They did mainly all the things of the Old Testament and kept them carefully, but their attitude was bad. They were taking advantage of the widows and the poor. They were stealing. They were lying. They were proud, vain, and boastful. Those aren't the characteristics of God in His Spirit, are they? No, God's not that way. They were mean and angry and bitter at anyone who disagreed with them. Those aren't the characteristics of God. So he said, you're not of God. You may be keeping these things right, but you're still not of God. So this woman, whoever she is, was seducing God's servants to false doctrine, to false belief, to a false approach. And I, have give, I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. And then it talks about how she'd be cast into great tribulation, indicating that she's still around at the end. Now let's go back for a moment and start analyzing this. Uh, Zeke, in his paper, said that 22 years ago, he read this and began to question what it meant. I've read it and wondered what it meant, but I never looked into it. Never really occurred to me to do that. But he began to look into it. Now, he went to Mystery of the Ages by Herbert Armstrong and to the autobiography to try to piece together what Herbert Armstrong was thinking. And Herbert Armstrong thought that the Thyatira era went clear back into the 15, 1600s, quite a way back, maybe even further for all I know, but he, in the Mystery of the Ages, he mentioned people like Stephen Mumford, uh, William Miller, Peter Waldo, and various ones that we have tried to examine and find out if they were Sabbath keepers or not. Now, the Internet wasn't around, as Zeke says. Research is far quicker today than it was then. So he went to libraries and tried to sort these things out in books. I was amazed. He put me on the trail with his paper here. But last night and this morning, I got on the Internet, and I found out stuff in minutes and in a few hours that it might have taken him weeks and months or even years to sort out in books in a library. It's that much easier today. And the story just started bubbling right up about this and what it means. So anyway, Mr. Armstrong uh, examined Peter Waldo pretty carefully, but any evidence that he kept the Sabbath is uh, really hard to find, if any. And some of the others were difficult as well. Charles Dorothy and Ernest Martin and some of those got into it and tried to show a trail just to prove that the Church of God would not die out. And they had a tough time. However... They did trace some people in Rhode Island and in the early colonies from 1607 up, uh, a people who kept the Sabbath and people who kept the feasts. Uh, Christmas and Easter were outlawed in some places. So there were people who came across the sea who indeed did have uh, some of, maybe quite a bit of, the truth of God. We don't know just how much. So there was or were, or was a representation, let's say, from England and Europe uh, of God's people, Sabbath keepers at least, who did come across. They were shouted down pretty quickly, as I've said before. But Herbert Armstrong felt that those people back then, Peter Waldo, all those way back then, were the Thyatira era. So, as Zeke looked at this, he says, well, where does Jezebel fit in? Because if you'll notice, the majority of the story about Thyatira is about Jezebel. So she was front and center a large part of, and perhaps a majority of, and a very strong figure within Thyatira. Okay? Or God wouldn't have given her that much press. 
So Zeke went back and studied Waldo and all of those people back there that Herbert Armstrong mentioned or other scholars have come up with to try to see what happened within their organizations. Waldo had the Waldensians, his followers, and so on. And he could find no record anywhere of a woman who was prominent in any way in any of those works. So it puzzled him. And it is puzzling. So he said, i got to prove all things. Now, let's see if we can properly identify Thyatira. Herbert Armstrong mentioned the Millerites, William Miller, back in early 1800s. And William Miller was a Baptist preacher, but he began studying the Bible. <laughs> Most Baptist preachers don't do that. But he began studying the Bible, <clears throat> and he began studying the prophecies. And he came to understand that Christ is literally coming back to this earth which you and I agree with. He also set a date. Duh. Have you ever heard that one in the Church of God? It was, I think, October 9th. It was in 1844 in any case. But she said Christ would return. So, not she, uh, he, William Miller. So people began to pay attention to that. And he began to have quite a large following because people are curious and They'd like to know when Christ is going to return. And he apparently was quite a dramatic and a forceful and uh, a good speaker. So a following came to be. They started calling it the Advent or the return of Christ. And lo and behold, I won't go into a lot of detail, it didn't happen when they said. A lot of people got discouraged, frustrated, and left. How long have you been around Church of, Worldwide Church of God? The 72, 75, ring a bell, other dates that may have been picked along the way. So this isn't something that's uh, unheard of in the Church of God, that people would set dates and be wrong. In any case, he set a new date. <laughs> and that didn't work out either. More people lost. Then those who were still there decided that, well... Christ was indeed cleaning the sanctuary, but it was a spiritual thing, not a physical and must be going on in heaven. Uh, Satan banned various... I don't even remember it all. I, I kind of read through it. Uh, I'm not too interested, but the point is, uh, it didn't work out too well. But out of that, there began to be a group of people who began to understand some truths. And from William Miller... Uh, one person who got involved with him was named, uh, let me get it here, Cranmer, what was his first name? Gilbert, I think it was. Uh, I just learned all this last night, or reviewed it anyway. Gilbert Cranmer, yeah. He began to understand the Sabbath. He began to understand about clean and unclean meats. He began to understand something about... Uh, uh, he didn't, didn't agree with the Trinity. Things that we know are so today. Never did really pick up on the holy days uh, at all, and did not believe they ought to be kept. But he began to understand some things, and they believed in grace only, <clears throat> which in one sense is true, but it is combined with works. Uh, by grace are you saved through faith, and by your works, are involved as well. So, in any, in any case, if you read down through the list of beliefs that he came to begin to have, you see quite a few elements of truth. Let's leave it at that instead of making this a ten-series sermon about people who've come and gone. But just to give you an outline. And then, <clears throat> up in Michigan, this Mr. Cranmer, began, organized, if you will, a church. That was in 1858. 1858. I repeat that. Keep it in mind. We will find 
I believe that it was a very, very important date. This is not the day that I want to get into that. That can wait till atonement. But 1858 is when he began the Church of God, Seventh Day. There was another organization that began five years after that that morphed into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Let's read Revelation 2 again and talk about some of this as we go through. Verse 10, I know your works and love and service and faith, your patience and your works. Now, those are some very fine qualities that reflect the fruit of the Spirit of God, right? And reflect what God tells us to do in our lives is have good works. So he has some very, very good things to say here about Thyatira and mentions their works and how the last ones were better than the first ones. Mentions at the beginning and at the end of his compliments here. I think we'll find that that's important when we understand a little more as we go here. Notwithstanding, despite the good that is there, I have a few things against you because you suffered that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess. Now, in the mix, at the time Cranmer started Church of God Seventh-day, it wasn't the exact name at that time, but it's close. And it became that, that organization. There were many who did not agree with Gilbert Cranmer, and they began to think more like the Seventh-day Adventists think today. Five years later, a woman who called herself a prophetess named Ellen G. White, it had been Ellen G. Norman, I think it was, and she married James White, But she became the principal figure in the Seventh-day Adventist movement. She had many dreams, and they told her some doctrines that were not biblical. Uh, One, she centered on Isaiah 24 with her desolate earth theory. And she picked out different verses in Isaiah 24 and said... uh, where it said the earth would be desolate, without an inhabitant. She used pieces of several verses there and took the phrases out she wanted and didn't finish them. Where it said, and the earth desolate, she stopped. Right after that it says, and few men left. She was dishonest. Her dreams came from not a good source. And they contradicted the Bible. I won't go into all of her prophecies. If you're interested, you can go read it. But the point is, she was involved with that group of Millerites turned uh, Seventh-day Church of God, ultimately. She broke off from that, and she seduced those people at that time with false doctrine and false prophecy, prophecies which to this day have not come, they've been spiritualized away and said, well, this is referring to something else, but it's still correct, blah, blah, blah. I gave her space to repent her fornication, and she repented not. She was familiar with Gilbert Cranmer. He was going the right way teaching not only the Sabbath, but clean and unclean, and various other things. I think he, I don't think he did Christmas and Easter either, as I recall. But he had quite a few things right. She didn't like that. She was given five years grace. Five is the number of grace. He began in 1858. She formed the Seventh-day Adventist movement in 1863. God gave her space to learn, to change, to repent. Five years of grace. She did not repent, but she formed her own group, the Seventh-day Adventists, and they are with us to this day. 
Is this beginning to sound like it fits the story? There are approximately 18 million Seventh-day Adventists today. They are basically a Protestant church, Sabbath-keeping Protestant church. They have very few of the true doctrines of the Bible. So they have been seduced into fornication with the religions of the world and into Satan's doctrines for the most part. They were, barely, a part of a movement of the true church that began in 1858 and separated from in 1863. She became a great prophetess in her own mind and in the mind of the followers and still is in the mind of roughly 18 million people today. Far bigger than any part of the church of God in the end time has been. So she had an opportunity, five years of grace, and it didn't happen. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. So the Thyatira church <clears throat> must exist at the time of the end, in order to be thrown into the Great Tribulation. Thyatira still got to be around. What happens to her is going to be seen by all the churches, as we'll see here in a moment. Now, she personally is dead, but her influence, her demeanor, her church, her group, her followers, are still out there, physically alive. So, in that sense, her work, her people, her children, are out there to be thrown into the tribulation. Not her personally, but everything she did, okay? Because that is her in that sense. I don't think that argues with Scripture. So they go into great tribulation. We already know that's three and a half years very soon ahead of us. And I will kill her children with death. Now, killing or dying spiritually is one thing. But I think the emphasis here is kill with death also includes physical death. Famine, pestilence, disease, and all that is about to happen to this nation as a sinning Israel of God. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts. How often did Ezekiel say, and they shall know that I am God. When the end time events began to truly come to pass, we have many passages in the prophecies that show that God is going to become known. I won't go into all of those today. We've examined some of them, like his treasures and vessels and the temple built and Jerusalem built, and on and on it goes, to show who God is. And he says that again here, that the great tribulation will do that. The two witnesses will have a part in showing who God is. And these people who are part of Thyatira, will be killed in the great tribulation that is coming. They'll know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts, and I will give to every one of you according to your works. Are they works of obedience or disobedience? True doctrine or false doctrine? The truth will set you free, and they have very little truth. So they will not be free. They will be taken into captivity. But unto you, I say, to the rest in Thyatira. So this Jezebel was going to influence and have a heavy influence on Thyatira. Okay? Most prominent figure here. Only individual mentioned in this passage. Who calls herself a prophetess. Can't find it if you go back to Waldo and Mumford and all those. Not there. 
but it's in the Seventh-day Adventist movement. So then he says to the rest in Thyatira, does that indicate that there's one group with Ellen G. White and another group apart from that? You got the Ellen G's over here and the rest of you. So it's talking about something separate. And it must be referring to people who are part of the church of God, okay? Because it's addressed to Thyatira as part of the church of God. Clear? I, uh, but unto you, I say, to the rest in Thyatira, those not involved with the prophetess, as many as have not this doctrine, which doctrine are we talking about? Doctrine of LNG, doctrines of Satan, and which have not known the depths of Satan. Now that's indicating that Ellen G. White had come to know the depths of Satan, and her followers had done the same thing. Now they were Christians in name and still are, but they don't adhere to the truths of the Bible or the practice of the Bible, okay? Again, the Pharisees adhered to a great deal of truth, but were not followers of God and did not comport themselves and conduct themselves in a godly fashion. So what did he say to them? He says, you are of your father, the devil. Them's fighting words. You are of your father, the devil. So if a group of people are not following God's ways and have come to know the depths of Satan's doctrine, then he is their father, spiritually speaking. So he said, those that didn't have her doctrine and hadn't known the depths of Satan. So there was another group of people there that were different. I will not, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which you have already hold fast till I come. So he told this other group of people to hang on to what they had. Now what did Gilbert Cranmer do? He began to restore some truths of God, clean and unclean. Keeping the commandments was one of them, the Sabbath. Various things that you and I understand to be valid today. Now, what happened to that group? If you go back into the mystery of the ages and into the autobiography, which I read some the last two or three days, you will find that Herbert Armstrong discounted that which became the Church of God Seventh Day. He did not even want to be associated with their ultimate headquarters in Stanbury, Missouri, but there was an Oregon conference that was affiliated loosely with them who had incorporated separately in Oregon where he was. But he was affiliated with and ordained by a conference of the Church of God Seventh Day, and did write articles and did speak in their services for some time. But he felt that they were a dead church. He felt they weren't going anywhere, they weren't moving, that nothing was happening, and he had better ideas and new ideas and better understanding, and indeed he did, in many respects. He learned things that they did not know. One of the biggest, or perhaps the biggest, was the Holy Days, and he presented those to Stanbury in Missouri, and they rejected it. So he started keeping the Holy Days, and he pushed two or three things that he had learned that were right, and eventually, I think it was in 33, uh, they officially gave him his walking papers. Now, he doesn't tell the story exactly like they do. Uh, I think he claims more he walked away, and they claim they booted him out, but be that as it may. There came a separation there, and he started doing a different thing. And God began, slowly, from a very small start, to build something there, which became the Worldwide Church of God. But that group has hung on to what they understood at that time, and they have perhaps learned somewhat since. But this statistic almost blew my mind. I never really considered it. You know how big the Church of God Seventh Day is today? 
As of 20, 2012, they claim 200,000 members. That's 25% more than Worldwide Church of God ever began to claim at our largest number. They number 200,000. You know how many congregations they have? Approximately 215. Today, as we address this, are they dead? Maybe they haven't grown very much in understanding, but then God didn't tell them to, did He? He said, hold fast at what you have and overcome, and I'll grant with you to have the blessings of the, the kingdom, power over the nations and so on, and into the millennium when He rules with a rod of iron. So doctrinally, they may not have made much progress. But they have held to what they knew. And I would assume that if they are Christian at all, they are seeking to grow and overcome in their individual lives. And, if you go back here to verse 10, it seems to indicate that they've been somewhat successful at it. Their works, and then some of the fruits of the Spirit, and their works again. Now, they were very, very small when Gilbert Cranber started them, but now they're 200,000 strong. The works are multiplied many times over since they began. They're still here. Bigger than worldwide ever was. I find this to be very interesting. What time is it getting to be? I am not going to finish this today, so maybe next Sabbath. But I don't want to just hasten through it too much. I want to take the time to help us grasp some things. Thyatira does not appear to have been Peter Waldo, Stephen Munford, or any of those, because they have to be still around at the end to go into the tribulation and to uh, be faithful until he comes. They will be around until Christ returns. So I think we have here a perfect description of the Millerites, of Gilbert Cranmer, of Ellen G. White, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and the Church of God's Seventh Day, which still exists and which is held to what they originally learned under uh, Gilbert Cranber and perhaps some growth after that. Still viable. Still there. Now let's go on to the Church of Sardis. If the Millerites, which became the Church of God's Seventh Day, or Thyatira, what is next? Oh, chapter 3, Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name that you live and are dead. Now, Herbert Armstrong thought that Thyatira was the Waldensians or the Mumfords or whatever, and that... Sardis was the seventh day, or Church of God's seventh day, which I think I have just showed you could very well be Thyatira. So next we come to Sardis, which has a name, a reputation of life. If you look at Worldwide Church of God, it grew fast. Herbert Armstrong said it grew 30% a year for quite a few years. Quite a bit of truth was restored. There was always an upward building. It seemed to be very alive. Did it not? It seemed to fit a name that you were living, Worldwide Church of God did. But, where is it today? 
It is gone. It does not exist. It is dead in the water. The name does not even survive. Some of it went to an evangelical thing through Joseph de Koch and disappeared off the map of Christianity entirely. Then you have many who are suffering and bleeding and dying that used to be in Worldwide Church of God when it was alive, when it had a name that, is, that it was living. Today, it is completely gone, wiped out, dead. Had a name that it was living, but now it's dead. You cannot go to a Worldwide Church of God service today. You can go to many Church of God Seventh Day today, still exists, still around. Worldwide Church of God is gone. You're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. There isn't much left, but some things remain. Some people remain. Some doctrine remains. Some has survived, in other words. But it, for the most part, is dead. Those things which remain that are ready to die. <laughs> Even that which is still going through the death throes, that still has some life, is ready to die. So overall... What is being described here has died, but there's still pockets of life somewhat that's about to croak. Doesn't that pretty well describe the recent history of the Worldwide Church of God? Remember, therefore... Oh, wait a minute, we didn't finish it. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Now, we like to think we were Philadelphians and it had nothing bad to say about Philadelphia. So, we would go to a place of safety and have our ticket punched for the world tomorrow. That was our thought. But now, if all of us who sat at the Feast of Tabernacles in Worldwide Church of God thought that, and then it got blown to pieces and died... How many who were there has their ticket punched for what we thought was the place of safety, Peter, at the time? How many are going to go there? Well, none, actually, because Peter is not the place mentioned in the Bible. But be that as it may, that's what we thought. So we thought we had no faults and problems as the Philadelphia Church of God, as Herbert Armstrong, and we all thought we were. But if it were the Philadelphia Church of God, Worldwide Church of God, okay? If that were the Philadelphia Church, and God said, I have nothing really against you, then why in the world did He blow it into so many fragments? I ask you. Maybe that's not what was being blown up. You know what happens when a terrorist straps something around his waist and goes up to a bus and detonates it? It blows things into little pieces. It kills. Worldwide Church of God was blown into little pieces and died. There were a few remnants hanging around, still showing some life, but ready to die. Now, what did God say in Zechariah 1? I'll run back there and read it. Zechariah is talking about the remnant church at the end. It is talking about the latter temple. It's talking about the two witnesses and those who would be stirred to come and build the latter temple. That's the whole subject of Haggai and Zechariah. I'm getting there. Zechariah 1. Here he tells the church, and Zechariah began his message right in the middle, time-wise, of when the book of Haggai was being written. 
So he says, don't be as your fathers. Don't stone the prophets. Uh, learn some lessons here. And then he goes on down and talks about uh, various things. But verse 12, Then the angel of the eternal answered and said, O eternal of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem? We know from Hebrews 12, 22 and 3 that that's speaking of the church spiritually. And on the cities of Judah, spiritual Israel, the church, against which you have in, had indignation these threescore and ten years. The church began to be organized and start in two, 1933. Seventy years later is 2003. I'm not going to get into our history here much, but that's when we were released to, go, to occupy this land. Seventy years later. We were in the clutches of Babylon. The worldwide church of God was through its whole existence. And God did not begin in a small way to deliver until 2003 when we could actually separate in where we lived. So the question was, how long before you begin to truly bless? And that was just a small thing in 03. It'll get better. But he said, you've had indignation these 70 years. The Eternal answered the angel to talk with me with good words and comfortable words. There was some encouragement. So the angel that commanded with me said to me, or communed with me, said to me, Cry you, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. So he says, even though I have been not answering, I have not given the great uh, answers to prophecy that you and I have read, and I can't review here that quickly. There are some wonderful blessings coming under the two witnesses and the remnant church. <coughs> so he says, I have a great jealousy for it. And I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. That would be the Tkachas, who took the church right back into paganism and Satan worship, to be blunt. Very displeased. For I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. So God was not totally happy with Worldwide Church of God, and the Tkachas came along and made things worse, and God became very displeased and spewed it all out. Now that comes just before the two witnesses are introduced right after this in chapter 2, 3, and 4. So it is a prophecy of the end-time church and how God was somewhat displeased with it. You can't find anything in the description of Philadelphia in Revelation 3 that God was displeased with. But you can find things He was displeased with in Sardis, can you not? They got blown apart and died. I've not found your works perfect before God. So he was encouraging in Zechariah 1, but he, did, he, but he was a little displeased. He wasn't entirely happy, okay? And then the Tkachas came along and he was very displeased and blam! They got blown apart and essentially died. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. So, it died in a big blow-up, and he says, you who remain, think, repent, change, grow. If, therefore, you shall not watch, I will come on you as a thief, and you shall not know what hour I will come upon you. They won't grasp prophecy. They won't understand. That which is left that God spewed out of Worldwide Church of God do not grasp prophecy. They don't understand what is going to happen next. They're still looking at going to Petra sometime in the future. Some of them think that Christ returns three or four hundred years away. They just don't know. They're confused. They don't even know what their commission is. They're out there trying to finish Herbert Armstrong's work. He finished his work. 
a calling was made. He died. And all the efforts they're making with their magazines and TV programs and everything, which are so blah you can hardly stand to watch them, are accomplishing virtually nothing. There are other scriptures that talk about that. Amos, for one. Eight, nine, whatever it is. We heard about the thief in the night in Matthew 24 this morning. They're not going to know. They don't know what to watch. They don't know what's coming next. They don't know what the two witnesses are going to do. All they know is it says the two witnesses will preach for three and a half years and die and Christ will return. They have no idea what the full commission of the two witnesses is. They have no idea who they preach to first or what they do. They have no idea about the temple in Jerusalem and the church building. They still think it's a Jewish thing somewhere. They just don't get it. Their understanding is lifeless, dead. So remember what you've received and heard and hold fast and repent. So continue with the beliefs, the doctrine, and repent of your attitudes. Isn't that what we need to be doing? Otherwise, this is all going to come and it's going to, wow, where did that come from? They will not understand. Where can you find the story? United, Philadelphia, living, restored. None of them have it. Restored made a run at it and blew it. You haven't heard much out of them since. He got a little bit of the story. But that's the closest of any of them that I've heard of that know what's going to come down and what's going to happen. You have a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So most of Worldwide Church of God, Sardis, is gone and dead. But there are a few left, and out of them there will be some who cleanse their garments, and will walk in righteousness. We know from other scriptures and the story of the latter temple and the two witnesses that 90% of them are going to go into the tribulation. Only a 10% remnant is going to return to build the temple and Jerusalem and be the latter temple. They don't grasp that at all. None of them do. Only a very, very few. So a few names left in Sardis, but not very many. Doesn't that describe what's left the worldwide church of God? Perfectly. He that overcomes, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So it doesn't matter. If we were part of worldwide and we were blown out and suffered death and destruction all around us, which I've been... I've been preaching that about the church for years and years. Ezekiel 5, famine, pestilence, disease, sword, captivity, spiritually, people dying right and left. Has that not happened to worldwide church of God, I ask you? Yes, it has. We thought we were Philadelphia. We thought we were fine. We thought everything was good. And then we had total confusion and bewilderment when it got blown apart and died. This description here perfectly fits Worldwide Church of God and what happened to it. Thyatira is still around with 200,000 people still clinging to basically the beliefs of Gilbert Cranmer, plus a little. And they're holding fast to it. And their great prophetess, who called herself that, has 18 million followers today who are essentially Protestants and worshipers of Satan the devil, whether they know it or not. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm not through with this yet, by any means. I have some scriptures to go through. Uh, which came to mind last night and this morning that tie in perfectly with the premise that Zeke has presented. 
And uh, I guess I'll have to wait till next Sabbath to get into it. But there are some very, very vivid scriptures which give the same description and which are undeniably describing Worldwide Church of God in the end time. Now, this is quite a shock to my system. I grew up from a little child, basically, thinking I was in the Philadelphia Church of God. The Sardis was the Seventh-day Church of God because Herbert Armstrong mislabeled it. Now I think I'm beginning to understand that Thyatira was the Millerites in the Church of God Seventh-day. Worldwide Church of God, even though it seemed alive and had a reputation of living, has died. It is gone. And very little remains. It is still alive. I'll hit Ezekiel 17, which tells this story in a different place, in a different way, but it's the same thing, and it shows something coming, a small beginning, a small growth, out of a dry, dead tree. And it is clearly describing Worldwide Church of God all the way through the chapter. So we'll get to that and add some other things to it. I wanted to show you the whole picture today, but I simply didn't have time. Uh, so we will continue this. Uh, don't throw rocks at me yet. <laughs> this is an introduction, but there is much more to go with it to show that we ain't who we thought we were. 